And now I'm going to read our passage for today. If you would stand with me. We stand as a way to honor the hearing of the word and what we think are the sacred scriptures and text. And we also stand to position our bodies in a way to attune our uh, ears. We think that the body matters and that physicality matters, materiality matters. And so we stand uh, to help us hear and to, to attune in a different kind of way than what we maybe we would because we recognize that what we're reading is different than um, you know, maybe the Harry Potter you read at night before you go to sleep for the fifth time or something like that. I don't know. So hear these words from the prophet Malachi. A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, though we have been crushed, we will, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God. Y'all can be seated. God, we ask and pray in this moment that you would come, that you would reveal to us anew and afresh your love and your gospel for us and for your people and for the world. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and consecrate our hearts, convict us, and allow us to see uh, rightly and anew, open our ears and our eyes, and allow your words Um, to be heard this morning as we come to your text and as we offer our um, ourselves to you in your service it's in jesus name amen so because we are at thanksgiving um, and we have now somehow come to the end of our 12-week series in the minor prophets or the book of the 12 as it is called and we're ending and setting up for advent and i talked about this on the very first sunday that this is an interesting way to do this. Now, the book of the 12 is a Hebrew scripture title that we give to all these books that we call the Minor Prophets. And just a reminder, they are the Minor Prophets, not because they are less than, but because they are smaller and they're not as verbose. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these are very long prophets. Um, Most of what we've been reading and going through this fall are a couple of chapters, three, four at most, most of the time. Um, And so they're, they're minor in that sense. And what they do, because they're a smaller message, and the reason we looked at them all together is because if you see them kind of in congruence with one another, they're using one another to tell something very large, to tell something bigger. Now, whether that is because they were edited intentionally that way or it just so happened, um, that's up to scholarly debate, but it is the way we have received them through the Hebrew tradition. Is these 12 books that come to us that are these different prophets, these different messages that are given throughout uh, several hundred years that are tell us, telling us something about who God is. And we here collectively as Mosaic, as we've done this through this fall, have been coming back again and again to the message that we think what they are telling us is that God is a God who keeps his promises. And this goes back again and again to his covenants that he has made with his people that he would love them, that he would care for them, that he would be gracious to them, that he would deliver them, that he would provide for them, that he would offer good things to them, that he would give them plenty, that there would be an abundance, and that he would always remain faithful to them. This is the promises that he 
the Lord has made to his people again and again throughout the Old Testament. And these minor prophets are saying, regardless of what has happened, God is faithful to be true to these promises. He is a God who keeps his promises. So now let's recap that history, those promises, just a little bit. Since we're coming to the end, we've done this multiple times. You may be getting sick of this, or maybe by the ninth time you'll like sort of go, oh yeah, I actually remember all this now. But this is the season finale, right? So previously on Gilmore Girls, as Anna makes me say. I used to always say previously on Lost, because I can hear that voice in my head if you watched Lost uh, in middle school like I did uh, live on TV, and we didn't have things like uh, Hulu and Netflix. That show would have been awesome in social media age where you could have binged it and like Reddit would have been crazy but we didn't have that and so we just watched it on ABC every week and you had to wait and if you missed it you just had to deal with it but they'd always say previously on Lost or previously on Gilmore Girls whatever you want to say Um, but this is our previously moment and so what we know is at this point there was this people this group that God has chosen All the way back to the beginning of time, God has chosen to work and to dwell among a people, his creation. He always wanted to be a part of it, and he has done this because he has always longed to be near to his creation, to those whom he loves. He has always condescended to us. He has always come to us to be near to us. He has always drawn near to us first so that we can draw near to him. We hear this in the prophets and in the Old Testament. They're always saying, draw near to the Lord. And what we learn and what we see again and again is that we are incapable of drawing near to him, so he has always drawn near to us. And there is this story, this repeated story of a group of people that God has chosen not because they are special, because they have deserved it or earned it, or because he intends to limit it to them, but because he has always chosen to work and to make himself known through his people and his creation. Because he loves them and he cares for them. And so there are these promises that are made. And there is this group of people that is chosen to be a conduit for God's presence, love, mercy, and grace. And the intention always being that God would take this people, that he would teach them his ways, that he would allow them to learn and to understand and to know him. And to have this intimate knowledge and relationship with him so that others could be invited into that. And the picture has always been that this people would be a city on a hill. A beacon. That the gates to this city would always be open. And that they would always be nations streaming to and being drawn to the goodness of the Lord. As this people manifest that goodness and that mercy amongst themselves. As they love one another and the poor and the marginalized and the weak and the broken, the sojourner, the immigrant, as they invite them into their city and they care for the weak and the widow and the orphan. And as they do this, people would be drawn to who God is. And what we see is that this project in humanity that God sets out on is continually foiled by the human beings in which he chooses to work through themselves. And so there's these moments where God is constantly making these different promises and saying, though you have failed, though you do not do it the way that I have asked you to, though you miss what I'm trying to do, I will continue to work among you. And he does so all the way to the point of giving them the thing that they wanted and that he didn't intend for them, which is a kingdom. God never intended for his people to operate the same way that the nations and the people around them operated. He had always intended that he alone would be their king. 
And yet they demanded that he work through the means and the structures in which they understood and could grasp. And he said, I'll grant it. I will condescend to you again and I will come to you and I will give you a king. And the people think that finally they have arrived. This is what they have always needed. They would make it and they would succeed and God would do the thing that he has promised to do among them. And no longer would they be outcast, sojourners, wanderers. No longer would they be a people without a place. No longer would they be followers of God without power, without influence. But they would have their king and they would finally rise up to what the Lord intended them to be. Now, dear readers, we know that this does not last long. The kingdom is united for a few years under three kings. We do get a temple and a place. We do get a city on a hill. And yet, even though they get everything that they wanted and desired, and even though the promises of God come true again and again, and even though he makes it plain and apparent that he is faithful to this people, they are not faithful to him. And so the kingdom splits We get the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, Samaria and Jerusalem. And these people, they fight. There's power struggles and there's little moments and glimmers of hope. There's like little teases that maybe they might just get it right and yet we know they fail and fail and fail again. By the mid-700s B.C., the kingdom of Israel ceased to exist as it's sacked by Babylon sorry, Assyria. Then in 587, Babylon comes. They've replaced Assyria as the world power, and they destroy Jerusalem. There's the siege. They ransack and destroy the temple. And now at this point, all of God's people are no longer able to dwell together, but they now live in exile under the rule and the reign of the world powers. Babylon eventually falls because as we've talked throughout the minor prophets, what we know and what we understand is no matter who the world power is, they are always supplanted and they are always replaced. And that is true of us and whatever kingdoms and little things that we think we might build and come to on this earth, they will end. What is made from material will return to the dust in which it comes from. All things will find their season and their demise except for the things eternal, then that are the things of the Lord, right? And so these cities, these world powers, these nations, these governments, they're always being uh, brought up, and then they're being tore down, just as the Lord promises. And in the midst of all of that, despite their evil and their uh, power-hungriness and whatever you might want to call it, what we see is that God is good and faithful to use even the furthest from his plans and his ways to bring glory to himself and to redeem and to find uh, hope in the midst of all this. And so Assyria and Babylon are replaced. Egypt has been replaced. And now we have Persia. And Persia says you can go back to your land and you can reestablish the city that you longed for. This is uh, by now we're like 513, 510 B.C., okay? Malachi, I almost said Micah, I just commented, too, this week on how good Kyle did on not mixing up Zechariah and Zephaniah. And I was like, I would have totally been going back and forth. And now I'm, I didn't even p- preach on Micah, and I'm doing Micah and Malachi. What I need to remember is what my friend, who uh, is a good, phenomenal preacher, he's actually preached at Mosaic back in the day when he was here at Beeson. But he made the joke that Malachi is the one Italian prophet in the Bible, and Malachi. 
I thought it was really funny. And all week as I've been reading it, I hear Malachi. Uh, he's not Italian. He's Hebrew, just in case you're concerned. But uh, no spaghetti and meatballs in Jerusalem. So Malachi, we're like 430 BC. So why that is significant? And why do I walk through all of this? Because this group of people that have longed to do this thing, to come back to power, there's been highs and there have been lows, there's been exile, there's been success, there's been moments where they were thriving as the people of God, and there's been moments where they have failed. They've been back now about 100 years from exile. The temple has been around for about 70 years, 80 years. And yet what we find in this moment as we come to the book of Malachi is that their waywardness is just the same. Their sin, their inability to follow the Lord has not changed, even after exile, even after being ransacked, even after destruction. And what has come in its place, what they have rebuilt, as we see and read in the Old Testament scriptures, is a shell of what Jerusalem once was. The elders, they wept at the sight of the temple, not because they were overcome with joy and excitement to see it rebuilt, but because they knew that it was so just like a fraction of what the original temple was and what it was meant to be. Those elders by 430 are gone. No longer do we have those that remembered what Jerusalem could be. The exiled generation are our grandparents at this point. The first returners that were born in the new land are now the parents. And the new generation is coming up. They're, they're coming to take the place of the leadership and they are a burnout, exhausted, cynical, jaded generation. They have not experienced what could be considered the greatness and the goodness of being the people of God. They do not uh, know or have firsthand knowledge, at least in their minds, of the miracles that God has performed. The history of the people of God seems distant to them because all they know is failure, all they know is shortcoming. All they know are all the ways that they have not seen the people before them get it right. And they're done and they are exhausted. And quite honestly, they're doing the things that they're called to do, and yet they don't really know why. And this is where Malachi comes in, and this is what he's speaking to us. And he's calling these people to say, why is this the way that you think it needs to be? Now, let's put a pin there, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about the half-hearted, diseased, and blind sacrifices that they're offering in the temple, the things that they don't want, the things they're wanting to get rid of, because that's the, where the worship has gone. They're still participating in it. They're still doing it because God's called them to. But what they're giving is a shell of what they were supposed to give. They're supposed to give the best, the first, the top, the cream of the crop, right? And instead, they're giving uh, diseased and malformed and dysfunctional animals that they don't even want, that they would have killed anyways. And the priest and the people are, ah, yeah, 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 it's fine, bring them in, it's okay, don't worry about it. We'll accept it, it's all good. Because what does any of this matter anyways? What's the point of any of this anyways? We're just going through the motions. Now, simultaneously, and I think this matters, Kind of world history-wise, what is happening 430 B.C.? And I say this to say because I find it enlightening, but it would be pointless for me to just give you information that I find enlightening up here. If we wanted to do that, we could just get coffee or I could start a podcast. 
I say this to say because I think what matters here is to help us understand what's coming in Jesus, okay? You guys, most of you know, I've referenced it a couple of times, or we know each other well enough that I've talked about it. I've been teaching this class at Stanford this year, CP 101. It's a a cultural perspective, following the development of Western history, kind of like pre-Greece all the way up to the Renaissance. And in this class, I, I taught one day and lectured on kind of the Hebrew world at this moment as it was developing in the context of what's going on in the East and the West. So in 430 BC, what you have going on is the development of Buddhism and Confucianism, okay? So there's this philosophical stream that's starting to kind of get into the waters of humanity where they are asking the questions, what exists? Why are we here? What is happening Where are we going? And there's religion and philosophy that is developing. And then if you go, that's kind of the far east, China, India, that area. And if you slide over to the far west, the Greek empire is forming. It is establishing its strength and its dominance. And in that, the Greek philosophical tradition is about to hit its height. Homer's Iliad and Odyssey in its mythology is deep in the waters. It's now, like, if you are a Greek person, you know of this. It would be, like, as us, as common as, I don't know what stories we would tell that are this common. The, the lore of Alabama's football and their fake 17 national championships. Like, you would just assume that's true, even though we know that's all myth. Those aren't real championships. It's just in the waters. The kids are just, they know it. That's what, so that's where Homer is. And what we have is this moment where Socrates is now teaching in 430. Baby Plato is born. He's about to become a student. And this sets up this scene that is ripe for someone to enter in and to make sense of all of this searching for truth. And in that too, what we see is that this Greek empire is about to come into Jerusalem. A hundred years from when Malachi is writing, Alexander the Great's going to conquer the Middle East, take over Jerusalem. A few hundred years after that, Rome is going to conquer Greece, and you're going to have the Greco-Roman world that Jesus is born in. That myth, that philosophy, that search for truth and meaning is going to be in the cultural waters that this group of people is kind of missing. And it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus. That's, my, that's what this semester has helped me see and understand in teaching this course, is how Jesus like steps into the middle of this like just culturally ripe moment. But this group of people, this jaded and cynical group of people, they're, they're missing this. They're missing what the Lord has called them to. And so we read in our passage, and this is where Micah picks up. They've been back for a hundred years. They're a generation that is exhausted. They've never seen the history. The only thing they've known is what it was supposed to be, what people have told stories and lore of. And they're wrestling with who they are. They're asking the questions of what is the purpose of this all? What is the meaning of our existence and our being? And Malachi opens with the gospel. The first word that the Lord speaks through the lips of his prophet is, I have loved you. Malachi could have said something like, I once loved you, I should love you, I would like to love you, I'm going to love you if, but that's not the gospel. 
in the far-off, wayward places that they find themselves, in the destruction and the disarray that they are participating in, in their worship and in their spiritual lives, what the first words that God comes and speaks to them is that, I have loved you. Now, you have to understand, that's not just a past tense sense there. It says, I have loved you, but what it's carrying is that I have, I do, and I will. It's an encompassing understanding of what God's love for his people is. I love you, he says to his people. I desire to be with you. I am the God who will fulfill the promises. And what, how do they respond? How have you loved us? How? Their response ignores their history, the grounds in which they had been built upon, the journey in which the people have got them to where they were. And they respond in cynicism, in jadedness. And here's the thing about this. This whole drama that was about to unfold in Malachi, these sweeping accusations that God is going to make towards his people and their rebuttals. And we'll walk through all those in just a moment. All of that could have simply been ignored, could have been skipped over if the people would have just responded, we love you too, and we recognize that we have sinned against you both in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and what we have left undone, right? As we try to confess here regularly as a people. If they would have just acknowledged, you're right, Lord, we have been wayward. We've gone astray. But instead, they come and they say, no, 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 you don't love us. Don't say those things. And so how, how have you loved us? The answer to their question that God gives them is the history of their people. I chose you, Jacob. I chose you over your brother Esau. Now here it says that he hated Esau. That does not imply personal like animosity. But he's bringing a highlight to or accentuating the difference between the chosenness of this group of people that he handpicked, that he cares for, and that he longs for. If that word hate bothers you there, you can think of Jesus' words in the Gospels where he calls and says that any that would choose to follow him must hate his mother his brothers and his sisters. They must hate their own life. And we know by the orthodoxy and the history of the church and its tradition that we are not called to hate ourselves in that kind of way. What he's making a reference to is this, he's juxtaposing two things. He's allowing us to see that God chose Isaac over Ishmael, followed by Jacob over Esau and Joseph over his brothers. He's so showing them that the people that were chosen were not better or brighter or more deserving, but that God just simply loved them and wanted to be near to them. The Lord God did the choosing, and that was the difference that mattered. This is how he has loved them, and he walks them through their history. Then what he's going to proceed to do through the rest of Malachi, he's going to walk through these continuing disputes he's going to accuse them of despising god and defiling the temple how they ask 
by bringing bad sacrifices, as we've already discussed, lame, broken legs, animals that were already going to have to be put out to pasture, right? These are the ones they're bringing. These are the ones that they're offering. When it was supposed to be the strongest, the firstborn, the best, saying you've totally abandoned true worship. And in this passage, he's going to go on and uh, name the leaders and the priests as just as responsible for accepting these. They're just as culpable in allowing this to happen because that is not the loving thing that the, the, they were supposed to do. That was not the call that God had given them. They were supposed to look into a generation of people and say, I see something more in you and this is short of what you are capable of being and what God intends to do in your life. This is what it means to bless people, by the way. To bring blessing is to look at someone's life and to say, I see something greater in you. I see something more. I see what God would long and intend for you. And I'm going to give my life to bless you and to allow you to come into what God intends you to be. This is what parenting is supposed to be. This is what friendship is supposed to be, is looking at someone, saying, I see more. I'm not going to stand by while you screw it up. I'm going to help you find this. I'm going to walk alongside of you because I love you enough to do so. And this is what God is saying to this people is I long for you to be more. And so he continues. Next is that he calls them out for their idolatry and their divorce. He's making this statement that Israel continues to move from their worship. The, they're continuing to move away from their worship and it naturally will cause them to move away from the family life that they are supposed to have. Loving and honoring God are is intimately related to loving and honoring one another. And Malachi is saying that if you are faithless towards God, it is only a matter of time before you will be faithless towards those around you and unfaithful to each other. Chapter 2 of Malachi. Their next accusation is one of weary. They've wearied God. How have we wearied God, they ask? with their idolatry, with their lack of worship. Now hear this. This is an amazing part to me. Though they have wearied God, remember, it started with a call to love. We've got a lot of young parents in this room. If you're not there yet, forgive our over-obsession with these analogies because it's the life we live as preachers. And it's a lot of the conversations we have with people because here's the thing parenting is wearisome is that a word can I use it as a word you are worn out and exhausted in parenting there are moments where you want to really give up there are moments where you want to quit there are moments where you think there is no way I could love this child it is a monster but this is what I have found in the few years of doing this Though I am wearied, though I'm exhausted, I still love, and I still show up, and I still care, and I still provide. And the word that the people of Israel are hearing in this moment is, though you have wearied God, He's still there for you. Though it is exhausting, He still wakes up in the middle of the night to tend to you. 
Though you, he is wearied by you, he endures your tantrums and your fits. And the accusations that you will throw of him that he does not love you and that he's a mean God, because that is basically what the Hebrew people are doing in Malachi. They are stamping their feet and they're saying, no, I won't listen to you because you're mean and you're not nice and I don't love you and I want a new family. And the weary God leans in close just like a loving parent would. And he says, I hear you and it makes me really mad that you're saying that. But I'm going to choose to know that that's not true. Because I do love you. And you're not capable of seeing it. And I do care for you. And one day you're going to get it. And even though you're saying those things, I know you don't mean it. You will get out of your emotional brain and into your logical brain and you'll be able to understand that the world around you is not everything that you think it is and you will see rightly and anew because God is patient even though he is wearied. Because he led with the gospel that he loves them and that he cares for them. And so he offers them for this moment to return and the next accusation is he says, you have to return to me and I will return to you. Because I am not going anywhere. I will not abandon you. I am faithful to stay near to you even though you are unfaithful to me. And they say, how can we return to you? And he responds by saying, doing the things I've always taught you to do. Specifically in Malachi, he says, by returning to your tithe. Give your 10% again. Care about the temple and the worship of God is what he's saying. Come back to the things that I've told you to do and come back to the worship of Yahweh. They won't have it. And they make one, there's one more accusation to end the book. It says they have spoken arrogantly against God, and again in their cynicism and their jadedness and their blindedness, right? You've dealt with people like this that are so blinded by their selfishness and their self-centeredness that when you make an accusation, they can't even see it or fathom how they could possibly do that to someone. This is a collective people of Israel. He says, I, you have spoken arrogantly against God by claiming that it is pointless to even follow me. By missing the whole thing that I love you. And why do they make this accusation? Because they claim to him, they're like, look around. What's the point in doing this? The wicked succeed. And I think even if you, if you want to psychoanalyze, give some holy conjecture here, this isn't in the scriptures, but I think if you think about it, of course this generation is wondering what's the point in following God. Look at those nasty sacrifices. That's disgusting. What's even more disgusting is God says that the, the trash and the dung of those diseased and maligned animals that they're sacrificing, that they will be a permanent stain on the clothes of the priest. They will walk around wearing the disease and the blood and the trash and the excrement of those disgusting animals. And this people goes, why would we waste our time with this? Look around, look how messed up this all is. Look how jacked up this worship is. Look how jacked up this temple is. It's not gotten us anywhere. And here's the thing. It's like you would have thought that exile would have done something. 
You would have thought that their 70 plus years of punishment and being expelled from their city would have done something to them, but they came back and nothing had changed. Their hard-heartedness was the same. As I was reading this this week, I couldn't help but think of the start of COVID when we all had these rosy, uh, bright-eyed ideas that uh, being uh, forced to stay inside of our homes and go through a collective trauma together would have actually brought the nation together. We were all like, oh, the, the one great thing about this is that like, we're supporting each other for the first time in like 20 years. Like, America hadn't supported each other like this since like 9-11 was what people were saying. And we're seeing journal essays and articles written about how great it was that the zoos were walking around with video cameras and letting your kids see in behind the scenes of things they'd never seen before. And celebrities were reading books. How long did that last? Like six weeks? Max? By the middle of July... Twitter was ablaze. By November, families couldn't even spend Thanksgiving with each other because their political differences and their hatred towards one another had divided them so much. We that quickly forgot the place we were in. So do not look at the Jewish people and think, you guys are idiots. We do it just as fast. We do it just as quickly. We forget about what has been, what could be, and we care about what is like kind of just like, oh, well, this is the way I feel, whatever it is, you know? So exile did the same thing then because here's the reality. This, so, so this is like the arc of the Minor Prophets, the Book of the Twelve. We land in this place after all the exile, after all the punishment, after all the evil empires, the bad kings. We end our Old Testament, not the Hebrew Old Testament, but the English version you have, Malachi, if you just flip two more pages here in Matthew. What's the problem? Who is the problem? Us. The hard hearts of the individual people. And there is a collective thing that is going on here, and there is also an individual responsibility that is being played out. The problem is the people. They're incapable of doing the thing that God wants them to. And they're going to spend the next 400 years trying to figure it out, seeking for truth. And then a man from Nazareth is going to show up on the scene. I think here's the danger, is that we followers of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ would become just like the defendants of Malachi's day. That we would become worn out, jaded, and cynical. And I think the reality of it is, is for a lot of us, we are already there. I have asked these questions. I have been asked these questions. Things like, is the church even good for society anymore? And I think it's really easy to look at somebody that is deconstructing that and walking through those and, and asking these bigger questions and to tell them, well, you just need to have more faith. But when you stop and think about it and you look around, you go, of course you would start to ask those questions. The pain, the trauma, the distrust, it's real. It hurts. You look around and you've participated in worship in your life that though it is not an animal disease, if we're honest about the reality of a lot of our own experiences and those of others, it's a diseased kind of worship. We offer a half-hearted sort of 
what's left over kind of mentality towards God in our lives. And we look around and we go, does the gospel actually really change anyone? When divorce rates are the same in the church as they are outside of the church, hear Malachi on this, your faithfulness towards God, it is only a matter of time before it will change your faithfulness towards each other. When abuse, power grabs, and scandals can litter the headlines, it is natural and it is understandable that we would stand up and ask, God, how have you loved us? Because here's the reality. The most painful things you will go in your life are not physical pain. I think Anna would back this up on with me. Like, like giving birth was really, really painful. It's a physical pain that is deep. But I would say that's probably not the most painful thing she's ever experienced in her life. The most painful things you will ever experience in your life are pains of the soul. Grief, loss, heartache, betrayal, abuse. Some of you have experienced things in this room that like, we don't even need to talk about, right? Like We don't need to utter it in these kind of public spaces. And in those moments, of course, you're going to grieve. And you're going to question, how can God be good when this hurts so deeply? The serpent slithers right in, just as he did with Adam and Eve. And he says, whispering into your ear in those moments of struggle and of doubt, did God really say all those things? Is God really who he says he is? Does he really love you? Is he really actually good? Or is he holding out on you? And in those deep moments of pain and of struggle and of turmoil, we naturally ask these questions. And what we're Invited to hear that yes, God does love you. He is faithful to complete his promises to you. He is with you and he is near to you. He desires to be with you. Because this is the story of who God is, okay? This doubting, lost, and wayward people that has wearied God abandons him, and he chooses to draw near. And when he chooses to draw near, they reject him and they despise him. And when they reject him and despise him, he attempts to draw nearer, and they crucify him. And a weary and rejected God that was crucified did not choose to stay in the tomb, but instead he opened up the gates and he came back out and he offered to that wayward and rejecting people himself in a meal. He met with his disciples on the beach and he said, let's just, let's get, let's get back together. Let's hang out. This weary God continually returns back to a wearied people. And he first draws near to them so that they can continually draw near to him. I said that wrong, but you guys got the point. He draws near to them so they can draw near to him. This is true through history, through Jesus Christ. 
And I think it's true of us now here today. We can see around us. And I think it's easy for us to ask and to look around and to say, but where are the miracles? Where is God? The same friend that uh, preached the sermon on Malachi, he said that he asked those questions in the devastating moments of his life. His life had been unended, ripped apart, and naturally he asked, where are you, God? Where are your miracles? And he said he felt the Spirit say to him in those deep, dark moments, Brett, you can see the miracles around you the same way a fish can see water. They're all around you and you're oblivious to them because I'm that present and good to you. And I think that's the story of Scripture and I know it's the story of my life. That I can look back and see where God has been all around me providing, making ways, giving me blessing, calling me to more. Because here's the thing, for all of the deep pain and struggle that we have that is very real, those moments of pain, we, we do this other thing over here where we don't even need real trauma, we just start manufacturing wilderness seasons. We start asking questions where they don't even matter. And I think we collectively have like started to do this societally towards the church. Like we're just making controversies up where they don't even need to be. We've got plenty of real controversies. Don't, like this is not me trying to dis dismiss the, the moment we are in as the church. I know I can do it in my own life real easily. Like nothing can even be wrong and I can start to kind of be like, I mean, do I really need to live that way? Does it really matter if I X, Y, Z? God's inviting us to see that, yes, it does. Why? Because he loves us. He cares for us. He's near to us. Christ, he came to a stubborn people that rejected and refused him. He died, was resurrected, and he comes again and again to us. And this is what we're about to celebrate in Advent, and this is what we celebrate when we come to the table each and every week, is this God that was unwilling to abandon his people and his promises. That came for a lost and weary world. That will abandon the 99 to go after the one. Though wearied and tired he may be, he will not give up. So as the band comes up, I'm going to invite you to come into this moment reflecting on these truths. There are bread and cups as we come to the table, I'll invite you to come and take a piece of the bread and the cup. And if you need gluten-free, we have that here on this side. Receive these elements as the reminder of who God is to us and for us. That he is a God that is faithful and true. That he is a God that keeps his promises. And we know with all the wondering, the waiting, the cynicism the doubt and the jadedness that is full of Malachi. The exciting part is we know that that's not where the book ends. They find themselves to be the problem. At the root of all lostness is this doubting of God's love and his goodness. And what we're given is that not a God that would walk away from a people doubting but a God that will double down on it again and again. And he does so most evidently by coming 
taking on human form where we were blind to see his goodness. He said, I will come and I will lay hands on you and I will heal the blind. I will feed the hungry. I'll be near to the sick. And he opened for us to see the ways that he is loving and caring for us. He came, he was rejected, crucified, and resurrected. And that is what we celebrate in communion, is this sacrifice of the Lord for our behalf in order that we might continue to be near to him. So as the band plays, come and receive the gifts of God for the people of God. And I'll come back up and I'll lead us in the taking of the elements. Amen.